think it's usually driven by greed or image, at least in our case. And then also in any other case I've seen, it's like uh, you get really addicted to, it sounds really cool to say I opened another store, even if you're making no more money. And it also feels great to have great margins and, and be like, I'm making, you know, 80 cents on the dollar. I'm bringing in all this cash in the short term. Sometimes that can be really, really, it can be alluring. Uh, I had one franchisee candidate. So someone that never actually bought a franchise, but someone that was thinking about buying a franchise from us, tell me at one point that they could not wait to have a grand opening. And they were like, if I could just buy they're like, if I could just build a store, have a grand opening and close the store, I totally would. And I was like, cause they had seen the numbers from some of the grand openings we had done. And I was like, wow, that's probably a red flag. Welcome everyone to the ultimate shift. Join Ephraim Glick and leading figures in business and entertainment as they share their stories of regular people overcoming tremendous obstacles only to achieve happiness, success, and fulfillment. Are you ready to make the ultimate shift in your life? to the ultimate shift today i am fortunate enough to have jimmy feeman on from no bait cookie dough welcome jimmy thanks for having me on Ethan. so do you go by jim or jimmy by the way i go by jimmy my dad is jim so i've got to be jimmy <laughs> i got you well i know we have a lot of mutual friends and this is actually the first time you and i are really connecting one-on-one so i can't wait to hear your story and i've you know done some reading on no bacon. It's pretty cool what you guys have done over there. Can you tell us a little bit about like how this all started? Yeah. I'll give you guys the quick version. So, cause it can get real long. My wife, Megan, who at the time was, uh, you know, we were just dating back in 2017 in March, she decided to leave her job to uh, start selling this cookie dough recipe that she was making. Um, at the time, it was like, you know, the main goal was, hey, I want to be able to quit my job. I want to replace my income. I don't want to have to work for someone anymore. And I quickly got roped into helping her in the kitchen. We started renting this commercial kitchen space off of Charlotte called Citizen's Kitchen of Nashville. And we would make cookie dough in like two or three hour sessions as much as we could. And then we'd go to the farmer's market on the weekends and sell it. And I remember we had this really cool experience early that summer in 2017, where we set up at the Centennial Craft Fest and we had a line of people buying cookie dough from us until it literally got rained out. And there was like a tornado warning. We had to take the tent down. But that was the first time, I guess, a couple of months in where I realized like, wow, we, we really have something here. Like we've been grinding away doing this. I was still working full time at the time, but like we'd been grinding away, you know, for like 30, 40 hours a week, just trying to make it work and just trying to get the name out there. And that was the first time where it was like, wow, people really like this product. They really love what we're doing. And, you know, fast forward from there at the end of the summer, October 2017, we got our first scoop shop open, which opened in Nashville right off of Centennial Park. That shop's no longer open, but we still have two shops open in Nashville. You know, the pandemic changed a lot of things for a lot of people. And yeah, from there, we opened eight more scoop shops over the next two years. And then we had a really weird moment at the end of 2019 where we realized that what we had been doing, um, trying to take this product that Megan had made, our cookie dough, and sell it through our own retail dessert shops wasn't really working. And it's weird. I think a lot of businesses will have that moment where they realize like something is not working or something that they've been doing has not been working. 
and I guess those are moments where you realize that you need to pivot and you need to change up something that you're doing. And for us, it's always been, we know we have a really good product. Let's try to figure out the best way to get it to our customers. And those shops didn't seem to be the right answer. A lot of them outside of Nashville were franchised. The franchisees didn't feel the same way about Novix that we did. And a lot of things were going wrong. A lot of things are falling through the cracks operationally. So we decided like, hey, we should start really focusing on the packaged product. So the jars of cookie dough that we sell, focusing on our online store and see what we can do there. This is like probably October, November, 2019. So if you just go forward a couple months, you know, COVID changed everything, especially for people who are running retail businesses like ours. And it was weird. It was like, well, the thing that we've been doing that we said like, hey, it's probably not working. Hey, we can't do that anymore. The thing that we said we were going to do that might be working, and we hadn't really been doing a lot of it. I mean, we were selling maybe like $20,000 of cookie dough online a month compared to like we were doing like six figures a month through our stores. So it was a small part of our business. It all went away overnight, and it was like, okay, now you have to focus on this thing that you said is going to be the future of your company. You know, because you can say something all you want, but it may not necessarily be the thing that you're really focusing on. And it was weird how being forced to focus on that then completely changed the game for us. Uh, it changed up, you know, what we were actually capable of doing. By the end of March, we were selling like $80,000 a week of cookie dough online. It was crazy. We like we went from like 5000 a week to like 80000 in a matter of like three weeks, which comes with its own set of challenges because we were not prepared to ship that much cookie dough or make that much cookie dough. And it was the beginning of, you know, the pandemic. So nobody knew where to get anything from because China had been shut down for several months by then. So it was a really weird time, but it was a lot of fun. And so when I think about Novix, I think about the fact that like we got to really start over at the beginning of the pandemic as a company and completely change what we do. At the end of the day, we've always sold the same products, but we got to do it in a totally different way. And since then, you know, we've met a lot of really weird challenges throughout the last year and a half. But the thing that has been a lot of fun is rather than start to get really, really bored of what we do, which I think happens for a lot of people where you're grinding, you're grinding, you're grinding, you're trying to make this thing work that you're working on and you start to kind of get bored of it. Or you start to wake up in the morning and be like, ah, oh, I don't want to do this again. It's made everything completely different, which can be good and bad. <laughs> it can be a little stressful, but at least it, you know, it stays fun. And yeah, so where we are today is we, we actually sell, you know, more, the most of our sales come from our online store than anywhere else. Uh, we still have two stores open in Nashville. One of them's on Broadway. The other's in Edge Hill Village over by Belmont Music Row. And yeah, we're a cookie dough company. So we sell cookie dough that, I don't even think I said this, but we, we sell cookie dough that's made to eat raw as opposed to bake. And you can bake it if you want to try, but I don't recommend it. It's definitely best eaten raw. And yeah, we, we have like, seven, eight flavors at a time in our scoop shops and online. And, you know, we try to make really cool desserts. That's, that's amazing. I can't believe like that you build, you know, the numbers you're talking about is just like, so when you think about no bake cookie dough, like, you know, we all grew up, our moms made cookies, we made cookies, whatever. And you can go to the grocery store, you can buy these packages of, of pre-made, no baked, basically, you know, not the same thing you're doing, obviously, but it's not baked, right? And you take it back yeah. and, you, and you, you bake it. So that's, you know, that's all I would know about cookie dough. So when, when you 
talk about making cookie dough and you're selling it and as to ready to eat without being baked, like what kind of preparation went into that? Like, is there pros and cons to that versus baking it, whether it's health wise or not health wise or flavor or, you know, why do you recommend not baking it? Yeah. So that was our really, <laughs> that was something that we had a hard time explaining to people. I think in the beginning for us, it was mainly flavor. And it was also this nostalgic feeling that I think a lot of people can relate to of you're baking cookies at home with your mom, your grandma or whoever, and you eat some of the cookie dough before you bake the cookies or you lick, you lick the bowl or lick the spoon, like when you're making cookie dough. And that's the kind of feeling that we were chasing after. I do think the flavor of our cookie dough is spot on for cookie dough that you're trying to eat rather than bake. And there are a few like recipe differences. So, for example, no-baked cookie dough are the cookie dough that we make. We don't use any brown sugar when we make our cookie dough, and we, we also don't use any eggs, and we heat-treat our flour, which is part of the process that makes it safe to eat. But not using any eggs, not using brown sugar, not using anything that might have actually kind of a cool flavor after you bake it, but before you bake it has a little bit of a bitter aftertaste. We avoid those things on purpose just to try to like recreate that experience of eating raw cookie dough at home with like, you know, I guess the people that you would bake cookies with when you were a kid. So that's kind of the experience that we were going after. And I think for Megan, it was just like, she loves cookie dough. It was her favorite dessert growing up as a kid. For me, I baked cookies a lot with my grandmother. So it was something that like I understood immediately. And I think for us, yeah, it's, it's mainly just innovating and creating like a new flavor and a new like cool dessert product. We have some really cool options as far as like, you know, dietary trends. So all of our cookie dough the base dough is dairy free. There are like inclusions that we use like chocolate chips or M&Ms that have dairy in them. And we also have a gluten-free option, uh, oatmeal chocolate chip, which is really, really great. But we've kind of stayed true to the fact that we're really just trying to make tasty desserts. Um, and our company's number one value is flavor first. So we focus on that before we focus on like a health trend or a different dietary restriction. We try to make something that tastes really good and then we'll adapt it to that if we can. And that's obviously working for you. When Megan first started, you know, wanting to sell this stuff, was this like to you, was it like, what are you doing? Like this is, you know, did you guys ever have that thing where this is just going to be a kitchen idea or a side hustle, if you will. But did you ever think that it would go to what it is, what it's become? That's actually a really great question. And no one's ever asked it me before. So Megan and I were both 23 at the time. And I say that just because I think it lends itself to being really, really overly positive all the time. The world, I don't think, has broken you yet at all, depending on the person. And for us, we went into it, Megan originally thinking, like, this will be my side hustle, right? And then it will replace my full-time job, and I'll be able to not work that job anymore that I hate. For me, I think maybe because of the way my brain is wired, <laughs> I don't know. I was the one that kind of encouraged her, like, this could be so much bigger than you think it could. I think for a long time, like, I was desperate to, like, find that thing that would allow me to, like, be a real entrepreneur. And I think I was really hungry for that. I think Megan was, too, because she went along with it really quickly. Our parents, on the other hand, both thought we were completely insane. <laughs> so... When I told them I quit my job in July, they were like, because Megan quit her job after we got our first like 10 orders online because she was running a little online store along with like doing the pop-up events and she got 10 orders. She quit her job. And then that July, so just like four months later, I quit my job. And I remember thinking like, even if I have to like sell cookie dough on the side of the street, 
I honestly really enjoy this better than like doing the job that I had been doing. And it was this moment, this feeling of like control over your future. What were you doing? Like what you have a marketing degree, correct? No. So that was Megan. I had a degree in finance, but I was doing marketing. I'm in sales. So I was working at an insurance company. My background just like, it lends itself to like, dude, you were bouncing around a lot and didn't know what you wanted to do. And I think that's exactly who I was. I went to Belmont originally for music business. I switched my major a couple of times, graduated with a finance degree. I was like, you know, if I'm going to be here, I might as well try to make money. I worked for a small startup. I quit that, worked for this insurance company called Jackson National. Basically doing like a sales slash marketing job. I wouldn't really call it wholesaling. I was doing sales because you don't actually sell anything. You convince financial advisors to sell something for you. And I was chasing money. I left that job probably after like nine months. I was chasing fulfillment, really. It's like chasing money because you don't really know what else to chase. And I left that job after nine months because I was just looking for something else to do and ended up working for the state of Tennessee, marketing their 529 plan, which is their college savings plan. So it's a sort of a similar job to what I was doing before, before it was like insurance, then it was that. They're both financial products. And I didn't, didn't really like what I was doing. And I was, I was confused about what I was supposed to be doing. And I think the minute that Megan kind of showed me like, oh, we could do this thing, I was like, dude, I'll jump on any chance to get out of what I'm doing right now. And I ended up becoming super passionate about Nubix, partially because the product is incredible and partially because I really just wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't know it, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it, it does. And I'm just curious where your lack of fear that often comes with that was or or was it still there where you were like, you know, a lot of people, they would be afraid to dive into that, especially you're talking four months in or 10 orders in. Were you guys just fearless in the sense of, you know, we're going to make this work no matter what, or like you went all in or was, had you never experienced a failure in the sense of you, you really didn't know that you could fail type of thing. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. So there are two, there are two parts to my answer. The first part is I am desperate to have that mindset that I had when we first got into it, when we first jumped in with no fear, I am desperate to find that mindset inside myself every single day because I think that is the mindset that really allows people to get up in the morning and, and fail and, and like, you know, eventually succeed. But like, it really allows you to just keep failing, which is really what entrepreneurship is, right? I mean, right. if you're in sales, even like you start to realize very early on, like you're eating a lot of no's. A lot of things aren't going to work out. There's going to be a lot of heartache <laughs> and you're, you're going to have to get used to it. So I'm constantly searching for that mindset and, so I've, I've thought a lot about what you're asking. Like, you know, why were you, were you the way you were? I think it is partially, we were really young and you're right. Like we hadn't seen any like super big failure that would, that would scare us away from trying. So there hadn't been anything in our lives that had like knocked us down real bad. Not like, and, and also it's hard for you to envision at that age, like what is being knocked down real bad. Now, we knew that bad things could happen because I remember saying to Megan, like, worst possible. So we leased the, the first store when we signed the lease, which it took a lot of convincing to get the landlord to lease the building to us. I was just going to say, like, that's still a new concept at that time. Like, you, there's probably no place or there's probably no information that you had on hand that you could show your landlord at the time. Like, this, well, you know, this company's doing X and, and this is why this is going to succeed. Yeah. There was no information at all. It was a lot of convincing and a lot of us saying like, well, here's what we've been doing at like pop-up events. Similarly, if you had a food truck and you're trying to take it to brick and mortar and eventually they agree because no one else would lease this building. 
there's this old white house over off of West End, and it was right next to the park. And it had like four restaurants fail inside of it. We were like, we'll be the people that'll take this thing and make it work. <laughs> and <laughs> enthusiasm, um, the enthusiasm, you have to have it. And, and it was funny because like we, there were so many things like that, that we had to overcome where I think it just took a lot of us being like, well, what's the worst that could happen? So I remember having this conversation with Megan where right after we leased it, she was kind of like, whoa, like we just leased this building, you know, got to make this work now. And I'm like, yeah, but like worst case scenario is we file bankruptcy and it's not even on our credit by the time we're 30. Yeah. <laughs> and she was uh-huh. like, yeah, it's fair. Like, I mean, worst case scenario. Right. And, and you get comfortable with that mindset. Mm-hmm. I think that has a lot to do with, getting rid of your fear. Megan later, you know, a couple, probably two years after that, she did a Ted talk and the topic of her Ted talk is facing your fears. And she talks a lot about that because it's something that me and her really, really focus on a lot is this ability to like just move past your fears or I guess like not allow them to make you afraid anymore. Because most of the time when people don't try something or they don't jump in or they don't just at least give it a go, it's all fear-based. And most of the things that we're afraid of don't even happen. I've had some terrible things happen to me over the span of my, my life. And really like, especially in the last year, a year and a half. And I was never afraid of any of those things. They just happened out of the blue. It was always the things I was afraid of. They just never happened. So I don't know. I think it's like being able to get yourself in that mindset that like, okay, like all the things you're afraid of most likely will not happen. The bad things that you're probably going to face in life, which you will, you won't even be afraid of because you won't even see them coming. And you got to at least like accept that a little bit, I think. <laughs> and, and that allowed us at least like me and Megan to like really like jump in and dive in. And that same mentality, it came out in an even bigger and more mature way at the beginning of the pandemic. Because back then it was really, it was irrational, like just, I would say being young, like just us not necessarily being immature, but like us not having a ton of experience with what could go wrong probably helped out a lot going into the pandemic. It was our ability to kind of like harness our fear and say like, we're not afraid of what's going on right now. We're not afraid of what's going to happen. We're going to put together a plan and we're just going to execute it. And whatever happens, happens. I guess it's a little easier once you've been in it for a while um, and you've been managing a business. But I think the people that were able to do that, especially during the pandemic, pivot what they were doing, think really, really hard about like, what is there really to be afraid of and come up with a plan for the people that succeeded in a big way. And we still faced a lot of challenges and we were by no means even close to perfect managers or business owners, but I think we're getting closer. I mean, we did a little bit better that time around than we did the first time around. It takes me back to when I started my first business and stuff. And I think there's something to be said to your enthusiasm and optimism that you had had going in and still have. It sounds like it's like when you think of how hard it is to start a business you can always, I always think of whenever I'm starting a new company, it's like, okay, well, in, in this space, is there a company that, that's succeeding in this space, right? And so, for instance, yeah. one of my businesses is, is commercial roofing. And so, well, I can look around and, and there's several companies that do strictly commercial roofing, meaning no, no houses. House, when you're a roofer and you do residential roofing, it's a lot easier to go, you know, a million houses around versus commercial buildings. But still being said, there's still a company or two or three that, that specialize in commercial roofing and they're succeeding. So, okay, well now I know I, if they can, I can too. Well, what you guys did is you went into an industry that you had nothing to compare it to. And you're just, you know, you just went into it. 
And I think the, the second. Yeah, it was very, very zero to one. <laughs> Sometimes I can that, that literally like that blows my mind. It's like I consider myself a seasoned entrepreneur, meaning I've I've had companies that have done great. I've had companies that have failed, and I'm still in it. Like to some extent, I consider myself seasoned in the way of, of I kind of know what to expect. And that would scare the crap out of me, not even going to lie, to think about just launching something completely out of the blue like that. And then, then, and, and the other part of your story that's so interesting to me is, you know, COVID is, I think if there's one thing we've learned as entrepreneurs, if you weren't willing to adapt, pivot, and adjust during COVID, you pretty much had your, your ass handed to you. And what, you know, when, when you went into that, where let's say, you know, Nashville, we shut down for what, two weeks or something, I think it was. And you, you saw that coming. Like, what was, what were you guys thinking? Like, was it like, was it immediately like, okay, how do we take this from being a retail storefront idea to, I guess you've already had experience online there or what was that process like? Yeah. So first I'll kind of like paint the picture for you, like where exactly we were. So we had been full on, like we're opening scoop shops until October of 2019 and we opened them fast and we franchised them. And we also opened corporate ones outside of Nashville and in Nashville. We hit October of 2019. We had spent a lot of money. Like we, we had like just dumped cash into this concept. We had an SBA loan that we had gotten, it was all self-funded or we got debt for it, but we had, we dumped a lot of money, like all of our profits, everything into building more stores. Then we go into the winter and we realized like, Hey, this is probably not the best way to grow the company and the brand of the business. You know, you're a little too late at that point. You've signed leases and a lot of things have happened. So these stores, they exist. Can we just pause on that? Yeah. Because you brought that up once or twice. And I'm, and I think there's something to learn there is, the concept was it the idea or did you see it was growing too fast and then you were just lacking the right people help for it or what was what about yeah there are three main issues first issue is a pure economics issue you this comes from immaturity actually and it, it comes from a lot of different things but a lot of i wouldn't even say immaturity because there's people who are much older than me that fall into this trap in the scoop shop, the margins that you're getting, like the gross margins, are incredible. So you sell a scoop of cookie dough, you make, you know, 85% profit. And that's being like conservative. You make you make a lot of money. Now the problem is that there are fixed costs that do not change no matter whether you're selling like 10 scoops or you're selling a thousand. We had always gone into it assuming we were gonna sell a thousand scoops. So like you're going into it thinking like we're gonna get this many customers per week. That's per day. We've done it before. No, it, and that's just a random number. I think the number was more along the lines of we needed to get probably like 60 customers a day okay. at each store. And it depends, it, it changes based on the store. But basically, you know, you're going with this number of like, I think I can get this many customers per day. The problem with that is in the winter, you don't get a lot of customers. Another problem with that is if you don't have the brand recognition that we had in Nashville going into 2018 when we were opening more stores and brands doing really well. And we had had an entire summer of doing pop-up events. And then we opened a scoop shop. You may not get very many customers at first. So there are a lot of issues with the economics behind that because those gross margins don't play out when you don't get volume. So that's the first problem. And, and there's also a lot to be said about the fact it's a very niche specialty dessert shop. The second problem was people in so many different ways. We lacked people in internally inside the company we did not sell franchises to the right franchisees which is another mistake that is made by a lot more businesses than don't make that mistake most people 
when they're selling franchises, sell them to the wrong people. That happens very often. It happened to us. We didn't think it would happen to us, and it, it 100% did. What we went out and got were we got franchisees that were buying it as if it was a rental property, not a business. Really? Expecting business-like returns. So you go out, you find people who are capable financially of buying you know, a franchise from you and opening the store, staffing it properly. But there is this X factor that goes into working with a new brand like No Baked, where if we don't have a lot of brand recognition, you're not buying a McDonald's. You have to put a lot of work in. You have to put the kind of work in that me and Megan put in the summer prior to opening our first store, where you're out there getting in front of your community, you're doing events. Sure, you can do paid advertising, but nothing replaces, you know, going to your local like craft market or farmer's market, putting up a tent with your logo on it, meeting people that live in that city, handing out free samples, selling a little bit of product. Like nothing can replace that. And it actually just takes a lot of effort and time. Making sure the store is like, you know, clean to the point where like a business owner thinks it's clean. Like little things like that only happen when you have a really good franchisee who's an operator, not necessarily an owner. And that's really hard to find. And the bigger the concepts, the harder it is to find. I'd say for Nobik, it was a little easier. If we had been more selective, we probably could have found people more easily than, say, if I was trying to open up full-scale restaurants. But I have a ton of respect to this day for anybody that can come in and actually operate a concept, especially if they're buying franchises and they're doing really well, because it's not as easy as it looks. Obviously, it's not easy to start something from scratch, but to be a really good operator of a business is incredibly hard, especially in the food in food service or retail. And that's just what we ran into. Like, it's very hard to find those people. And when you don't find them, things go south very quickly. So we would have grand openings, like the one we had in Chattanooga, where we would do like, you know, 100K in sales in one month out of a cookie dough shop, which is absurd. And then those sales would taper off and they would taper off and they would taper off and they would level out at a really tiny number, like 20 or 15,000 a month. And then the franchisee would be like, well, what happened? And really the grand opening obviously was insane. And then you just never went out again to try to like bring customers back. And we ran into that issue many times and we never ran into that issue in Nashville. That is the one thing that like, we continuously came back to where we were like, all right, this is definitely like a either Nashville is some sort of unicorn unicorn market, which is probably not likely, or we're just we don't have the right management or the right you know effort going into these markets outside of the city, which is probably more likely the case. It's really really hard to get people to try a new concept, and it's really really hard to continue to remind them that you exist, and you got to keep grinding and trying to do that. And, when you have a food concept, you have the benefit of your food. You have the benefit of being able to do catering and a lot of other things. And those things just take a lot of effort, a lot of time on the front end. And a lot of people don't want to put in that kind of work, especially when, like, if you look at the Chattanooga franchisees, for instance, they're all incredible people with a really great business background that had full-time jobs still. So there was nobody there. Like, they couldn't just stop working their full-time job and run this place. Like I said, they were buying it as like extra income. You know, this is my, my new side hustle when really you can't have a retail business as a side hustle. That's crazy. So that's main, the main two issues that we ran into where we were like, we need to pivot and we need to do something that's more our, like something we're good at. Because what Megan and I realized was we're a cookie dough company. We make the best cookie dough that's safe to eat on the market. There, we have several competitors now. By now, we I think we have five competitors. I will... Blind taste, blind taste test till the end of time, proving to people that we make the best cookie dough out there. 
flavor wise. That's what we're good at. And we just realized we needed to do something that was more like more us for that model. Like we had a really killer brand online and we're making a killer product. There were a lot of things that lent themselves to e-commerce and also to just like going, you know, traditional retail where we sold it to a grocery store where it made a lot more sense for us. The margins are not as good at all, which is why we didn't originally do it. So it's like, <laughs> that's the funny thing is if you had looked at it from like a long-term perspective, you probably would have told me back in 2017, Hey, you should probably consider doing traditional retail or selling it online. Even though those margins aren't that great, you know, you'll make it up in volume and also a business with, you know, decent gross margins. They're not the greatest in the world. Not a lot of fixed costs. If any is much more recession proof and much more sustainable than a business that has giant fixed costs where you're living hands to mouth if you're not killing it all the time. Because that's kind of where we had put ourselves, like right in the beginning, like right before we went to COVID. It's like we had a really, really slow winter, built a ton of stores, didn't have a lot of cash on hand, and you had a business with a ton of fixed costs and not a lot of variable costs. So when you had bad months, you had really bad months, which is interesting because it's really like a greed thing at the end of the day. Like the greedy person would always want really great gross margins because they're going to be like, well, we're going to sell millions and millions of units trying to make more money for ourselves. When really you should be more focused on rather than greed, you should be focused on making your business succeed the way that it was meant to succeed and making sure you don't go out of business. So those are just maturity things that like, you know, you have to probably learn the hard way or you just have to be a very wise person. (laughs) And I would say we learned them the hard way. So is the lesson, part of that lesson is, is it, would you say that the world we live in today versus maybe setting up an internet shop, like you guys have obviously figured out how to do, you know, packaging up your cookie dough and jars and shipping it wherever you want to ship it versus opening up a storefront. Now the storefront looks better maybe to the people, you know, if you're going to go ego wise, like bigger, better, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's how a yeah. lot of that's what causes a lot of entrepreneurs to fail. Was your lesson part of that in there to say, you know what, we can do this? Is it, I guess my question is if somebody is struggling in that situation right now, would your advice be, you know, to take it online and manage it in house versus selling franchises? I think that it depends on your business. And I think that the real lesson, and you were kind of getting at it, would be. And don't do the thing that, you know, ego tells you to do. So like, don't, don't open more shops because it looks good. Right. Don't necessarily lean into a certain business model because you think it looks better. Really, really think about what is sustainable or what is actually good for your core business. I mean, I think online businesses are great. If they work, it's great because usually they have a lot of variable costs and not a lot of fixed costs. So once you start doing volume, you start making pretty good money. Granted, the money is not as great. I, I recently had a conversation with it's a friend of mine in Nashville who runs a similar type company to ours. They're, they're packaged, you know, drink. And he was like, dude, I mean, it's weird. I, I'll do like, you know, $200,000 in sales and only make like four grand. But you can scale all the way back down to like, I'm doing $20,000 in sales and I made $400. Doesn't sound great, but it's like you weren't losing money. And also it's a different kind of business. Like it's just the way that it's structured. And I think you really got to think about that. So for us, we just had a lot of greed in the beginning driven by, you know, you get a little bit of taste of money and then you're like, Oh wow, I want more of that. And for us, it was 
these margins are crazy. I think on one of our grand openings, we made almost $100,000 in profit in one month. And that was driven mostly by the fact that there were just weren't a lot of variable costs. There was tons of fixed costs, but it was like, you know, the total revenue was probably like 130 grand and we made like a hundred because there were only $30,000 in costs. Mm-hmm. But if you scale that back down, it's like how many of those were fixed to where when you're, you're selling $30,000 of cookie dough, is it 20 or 25,000 in costs? And now how, what makes this any better than, you know, running an internet company? And there's also stuff to be said about like, do you want to really have to like drive the stores all over the country and make sure that they're running them well and make sure they're clean and, there's just, it's just, you have to figure out that you stop looking at like the money and start looking out with like what is good for your brand or your product and what represents it the best. And it's like, we were represented really well packaged because the quality and consistency of our food is always the same. The cost the economics work better for us because it's really hard to drive tons of traffic to a niche storefront when really I'd rather spend our marketing dollars on like attracting the right customer who really likes our product and wants to come back. A lot of decisions there that you should make based on your product and brand and not on money because the money will come when you're making those right decisions. I think right now there are some really good examples at much larger scale than, than no baits. You can look at Casper, uh, the mattress company that's mostly online, and then take a look at some of the things they did that led them to, I think, this last week being acquired for less money than they raised. I think they raised over the course of the company's history over $300 million. They went public they just got bought for $300 million, <laughs> like off of the taking private again. And it's like, well, why did that happen? And it's like, well, they're out here building mattress stores when their whole point was that they were an online company that had no mattress stores. And they had a whole like team of developers building custom like web tools for their website when that just doesn't really, like it doesn't build any return. It just makes the website really fancy and it feels cool. It feels techy. So it's like, you just got to stay true to yourself. And a lot of times people just don't something that we had to learn the hard way. So why do you think that people don't stay true to themselves or their original idea? I think it's usually driven by, by greed or image, at least in our case. And then also in any other case I've seen, it's like uh, you get really addicted to, it sounds really cool to say I opened another store, even if you're making no more money. And it also feels great to have great margins and, and be like, I'm making, you know, 80 cents on the dollar. I'm bringing in all this cash in the short term. Sometimes that can be really, really, it can be alluring. Uh, I had one franchisee candidate. So someone that never actually bought a franchise, but someone that was thinking about buying a franchise from us, tell me at one point that they could not wait to have a grand opening. And they were like, if I could just buy they're like, if I could just build a store, have a grand opening and close the store, I totally would. And I was like, cause they had seen the numbers from some of the grand openings we had done. And I was like, wow, that's, that's probably a red flag. That's <laughs> probably, that's probably a red flag because that's just you saying like, you'd love to make a lot of money and that's fine. But we all would, we all like to make a lot of money. You don't typically make a lot of money unless you're, you're doing the right things, at least on over the long term or the uh, long run, like, you know, build a cool product, solve a problem. Like with your business, it's probably the same thing. Like you, you would be great to charge customers tons of money and do a shoddy job, but it's also probably better to do a really, really good job, maybe make a little less money and build up a good reputation. Yeah. And you think, I feel like in any business, if you're not playing the long game, then, then you're going to go down with the business. Yeah. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And, and even more important than that, or part of that is if you're not taking care of your customers, then 
you know, you're not going to get, I think just so many entrepreneurs make the mistake of chasing the new customer versus, which is interesting what you just said earlier, you know, you, you'd rather put your marketing dollars to the people that are going to come back. And that's the same thing. Essentially you're figuring out who is your customer and you're, you're taking care of them versus always chasing that, that new customer, that new drop in, in your case, how are you able to figure out how to attract that customer when you're thinking about, you know, no bake cookie dough, how do you figure out who that person is that's going to like the product? So for us, I think that eventually it it just lent itself way more to to selling online, and because we were able to target in such a a much more targeted fashion with like our our advertising. So using Facebook ads, um, using specific influencer marketing, and really taking a look at who our customer had been at the shops and who was coming back, we were able to figure out you know over the last five years who likes our product, who really would love to come back and actually try it again. And, you know, being able to use that, like build up a really loyal base of customers. So, you know, other lessons that we learned throughout the pandemic were, you know, you can't just continue paying for new customers. You have to find a way to like make things sustainable. Currently, the majority of the customers that buy from us online are returning customers. We have a super loyal base of people on Instagram and also just generally online that, that love our products, they love the way it tastes, and they love coming back, they love sharing it with their friends. So, I mean, finding those people was really just, you know, testing. Like, that's the initial thing you have to do, especially with online ads, is you have to, you know, come up with a theory, test it, or I guess a hypothesis, if <laughs> you're being technical, test it, figure out if it's working, and then kind of scale it up with dollars. And then when you find those people that actually are coming and buying your product, you know, start collecting their information, start retargeting them. But more than that, start building a community around them. And that's something that, you know, we're still trying to figure out. We're still working on doing, but it's what we're working towards. Being able to build a community around our customers so they don't look at us as just a person selling them some kind of commodity product, but as a brand that's selling them a certain kind of experience and a brand that understands like who they are and what they want from us. And it's building like a, a relationship with them that doesn't feel so transactional. Oh, I, I was just going to say a lot of people try to do that with subscriptions, but you know, that's just the beginning uh, of that. That's one thing I'm not a fan of. So I think the fact that you figured that out is pretty cool. Cause I think, I think that's yeah. almost twisting someone's arm too. But I, I, I was, it really is. I, I was going to add to, you know, to your credit, the one thing that you, the way I found out about no bake, I mean, I've heard of no bake, for years now. I mean, probably since you've started. And the way I found out was you guys get very involved in the charity work in town, in the nonprofits and, and kind of work that crowd too. And I think that's a really genius way to grow your brand because that's how I've heard of, that's how I heard of you was through Caring Hearts, who I know you support, you know, very much. And so, and I think that's, there's something to be said there too, that business owners may tend to write off that nonprofit because they, they might not think that it's going to help their brand grow, you know, make them money if you're only out there to make money. And, and I think that that's a big part of, of the local community is to get involved in those. And it's obviously been beneficial to you. Yeah. I think when it comes to that, it's similar to what you said earlier, you got to play the long game. If you're out there to make money today, you're probably not going to succeed. I mean, you have to figure out how you're going to make money over the long term or how you're going to build a brand. So, I mean, companies can really fall into like one of two categories. Like you can either be kind of a commodity company, which 
that's really, really hard to do as a new entrepreneur because if it's something that's a commodity or can be commoditized, then the big guy with the most money is always going to win. We really fall under the brand category where we're trying to build a brand. We're trying to build brand equity and, you know, like create this culture and, and these other things around the brand and like the product. So it's really intangible. And that work that you do with nonprofits or the things that you do to just be a good person, similar to what you do to be a good person, honestly, as to being a good company, like sometimes introducing someone to someone else and they both, you know, benefit from it. You don't really benefit from it at all. It doesn't make sense to you at first, but then it will make sense to you years from now when maybe one of those people can do you a favor. It's always weird to see how those things play out over time, but it's like, it also has to be authentic. I mean, Natalie, for instance, with Caring Hearts, one of our, our really good friends, I know she's one of yours and it's like, I love the passion that she has for what she does. Megan and I have gone down to Mexico and kind of seen what she is doing with our own eyes. And then it's like, of course I would love to support this person. And it's completely authentic. It's like, well, I want to support them because I love the passion that they have for what they're doing. And I also now feel passionate about it. So I'm going to support it. And then when people yeah. find out about our brand through that, maybe they get to know a little bit about us just by knowing that like, Oh, we're all related to this cause and this is how we feel. I think there's a lot of power in that, like a lot. And a lot of brand, a lot of business owners do sleep on that. They don't, they don't think about it that way because they're like, I want ROI now when really you should just be trying to build, you know, that brand equity that comes through a lot of different ways. Yeah. And also just to add to that is you're, when you're getting involved with something like that, you're making your mission and your purpose bigger than yourself. And there's something about that, that, that gets people behind to rally for you, whether you're a company or an idea or a nonprofit, if, as soon as you can make it bigger than yourself and your own pocketbook, I have found people will, people will come and, and support you a whole lot faster. And I mean, there's just some, some entrepreneurs that, that just never, they, they don't see the bigger picture like that. But you know, then again, I guess we're not, you know, I think some companies are meant to stand out and that's, that's obviously what you guys have done, which is pretty amazing. What you guys have built. I personally would have never have dreamed that somebody can make a business out of cookie dough. I, if somebody would have come to me and been like, Hey, would you invest in this? I, I would have probably laughed at them. Honestly. And I would have been that person. And it's just crazy to hear these stories. Yeah. I think at a certain point, if there's anything I've learned, I think the product is, is one thing and you do definitely have to have a good product or good idea. But I think it has a lot to do also with, with the people involved and their personal understanding of kind of what they're trying to do. Because I have come across many of the same things where I'm like, I have no idea how this is working. <laughs> or, or I have no idea how you guys were able to pull this off. But it always seems to be that it was someone that was very dedicated, you know? Because yeah. I wouldn't have the first clue how to do what you do. Um, and somehow, like, people are still able to, like, go out take something that they know that they think there's a market for and just like make it work. But because I think that's so hard, it really has a lot to do with the dedication that the person has, yeah. which I mean, that's hard to do. <laughs> it's hard yeah. to stay positive after, you know, doing something for five, 10 years. There's a guy I'm friends with that has been running a, a CPG, a consumer packaged goods brand for 12 years. And I like to remind myself they're, they're very far along. They're very successful. And I like to remind myself that like, it wasn't always that way for them. Mm -hmm. And like, you, it's cool to know someone personally so you can see their story, see what that 12 years meant and know that like, you're not even halfway, like I'm not even halfway compared to them. Right. So we're going to be five years in as of March of 2021. So, you know, 
not even half of what they are and it's like probably not even a third so that's just weird to think about like you got to stay positive and you got to get ready for a very long journey (laughs) and get comfortable with it that's where the reward comes in even and the journey and the reward i think is is the journey it's not the end of that and i think when you get to the point where you're selling millions a month in in cookie dough it's probably not going to be as fulfilling as it is through this stage that's honestly probably true and in so many ways it's weird how the struggles that we've had have kind of defined the highs of the business you know covid being one of them getting the first store open was another like gigantic struggle that then defined the high of that grand opening all the highs were defined by the lows that that they came before them and, and they're not even lows right they're really just like struggles that then you prevailed over they're really weird to think about because then you you look at back on those moments and you're like wow that was that was great like, like you, you felt true victory only after you prevailed over something that really wasn't supposed to happen yeah you see your character being carved out of the block and it's making you who you are and who you've always wanted to be. We're coming up on time. I don't want to take up all your day here, but I do have another question for you. And it's it's a more generic question, but I'm always curious as to people's insight on the world. And if you were given the world stage for a few moments and you could say something to the entire world that they would remember you by, what do you think the world needs to hear from Jimmy Freeman right now? Yeah, I think... The one thing that I really want to impart on, on everybody, and I wish more people would really, really grasp and, and actually really think about, is that you should not let fear define your actions. I know that was brought up early on in this podcast. Something that Megan and I constantly tell people is to just do it, to just go out and start whatever it is that you want to do. I think a lot of good would be accomplished if people simply said, I'm not afraid to do whatever this thing is that I want to do. I'm just going to go try it because like, I can't even imagine the amount of people that are stopped on a daily basis around the world by fear when it comes to them achieving something they want to do. And that doesn't just apply to a business at all. It applies to your own personal health. It can apply to a cause that you want to get behind and you want to actually start like supporting I mean, it applies to so many different things. And I wish more people just wouldn't be afraid to just go out and and attempt to change something about the world if they didn't like it. Because that's the only way the world changes. You you go out and attempt to to make something happen. There's a lot of people throughout history that honestly, looking back on them, you're like, wow, that that was easy. But it's like, probably not. (laughs) They're probably terrified all the time. I think for all of our listeners, you guys, you should try out no-bake cookie dough. I've tried it. I liked it. Even though I'm not a no-bake guy, I really, it's not, I I like my cookies baked personally, but I probably (laughs) have all of the amazing flavors either. All that to be said, how can people support you, find you? You know, we have listeners all over the world, so can they get your product? Yeah. The ways you guys can support us, you can find us at nobakecookiedough.com or nobake.co. That is our, our web store. We only ship to the United States right now. We are coming out with some products very soon in the next six months that are probably going to be shipped internationally. If you live in Nashville, you can check us out at one of our two scoop shops. One of them is at the Assembly Hall down on Broadway. The other one is over by Music Row. Just Google No Baked Cookie Dough Nashville and you'll find it. Our Instagram is at No Baked and we're at No Baked across all socials. So if you want to follow us there for any cool product updates, please do. And Ephraim, it was really great being on. Thanks for having me. The pleasure was mine. And if people want to follow you personally and, and 
follow you more closely to learn more about your story, how would they find you? You can be able to find me all the socials at James Feeman. So James instead of Jimmy, but I'm out there. I'm all super active on Instagram and LinkedIn, and I'm trying to figure out how to be active on TikTok. <laughs> but I haven't figured that one out yet. Yeah. Well, hey, it's been my pleasure, Jimmy. We'll put all those links in the show notes as well so people can just click on them. And yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed learning about your story and I think we need to connect more uh, since we are both in Nashville. Yeah, we, we definitely do. We need to go grab dinner or something. Absolutely. All right, brother. Well, I appreciate your time. You've given me more than I could have asked for. And until next time. All right. See you.